Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Trainer Talk, a place where negotiation trainers talk shop. My name is Max Bevilacqua, founder and principal at Max Negotiating, a spinoff of the Harvard Negotiation Project. Hi, Max. I'm Gwen Krause, and I've been training negotiation and leadership workshops for 25 years around the world in multiple industries and worked with several training firms, including Vantage Partners, Action Design, as well as my own training and coaching company, Polaris Professional Development. Max and I are delighted to have our colleague Joe Bubman on the show today. Joe has extensive experience training negotiation in the corporate sector, and then Joe did a long-term assignment with Mercy Corps, where he worked with NGOs around the world. Most recently, Joe has established Urban Rural Action. Urban Rural Action seeks to prevent violent conflict in the United States by creating enhanced relationships and strengthening collaboration skills across geographic, political, and racial divides. Welcome to the show, Joe. Joe, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited for the conversation. So before we jump in that conversation and your stories, I just want to ask and give you the opportunity for those people who might be listening who are interested in conflict and negotiation, but don't really know, you know, how do you make a career of it? I'd just be curious to hear really quickly your, your path to where you are now. Sure. Well, my path started really in the academic arena. Um, studying international conflict management at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And then in the private sector, working for a consulting firm, Vantage Partners, which helps large companies negotiate and manage strategic relationships with alliance partners, suppliers, customers. And from there, I became affiliated with an international non-governmental organization named Mercy Corps, which shares a heritage with Vantage because Mercy Corps in 2004 merged with the conflict management group, which like Vantage had spun out of the Harvard negotiation project. And through Mercy Corps and their peace and conflict work around the globe, I began supporting efforts in conflict contexts to address the underlying causes of organized violence and to advance what we call positive peace, uh, more peaceful and just societies. Um, and at some point in the past few years, I decided that a lot of the conflict dynamics that we see in East Africa, West Africa, Southeast Asia, Central America exist in our own United States of America. So I redirected my focus to trying to work on conflict in the U.S. Joe, fantastic. Love it. You're doing God's work. Um, I also am not going to let you slip by the term positive peace without explaining it. So this implies there's a negative piece. I'm hearing Johan Galtung. Can you tell us more about positive peace? Yeah, um, negative peace, we might describe as the absence of violence. And I, I believe Martin Luther King Jr. coined both terms, negative peace and, and positive peace and decried the satisfaction of white moderates with a negative peace um, and said instead that we need to pursue positive peace, meaning a society characterized by a justice for all, where it's not just the absence of violence, but where um, we, we embrace the tension um, of having injustice so that we can address that injustice 
um, and, and address it head on because only by doing that can we achieve a more peaceful society where everyone uh, is treated equally and everyone has uh, rights that are respected under the law. That's, that's great. So Joe, you started Urban Rural Action. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit about that organization, why you started it and what you do? So, you know, one of the things that I've thought about, Gwen, and it connects with Max's question about sort of what led me here is that when I first became affiliated with Mercy Corps, I was doing a secondment. And this was, by the way, great professional arrangement, if you can swing it, um, to second to an organization that is affiliated in some way with your current employer or, or maybe an overseas office um, so that you can meet new people, do different types of work. And, and Vantage agreed to second me to Mercy Corps for six months. And I was in Guatemala for three, Kenya for three. During my time in Guatemala, the focus of Mercy Corps' work was really on resolving land disputes. Uh, there are many, many land disputes in Guatemala, particularly in more rural areas, in, in the highlands, in mountainous areas, um, where it's mostly indigenous communities. Uh, these land disputes take different forms. Uh, they can be disputes between like different households, different families, or collections of families, like small communities, where the border between their pieces of land isn't that clear because land deed record keeping in Guatemala is, is not uh, super sophisticated or organized. Or the disputes might be between groups of families and a large landowner. And again, it might be um, based on payments that are supposed to be made from people living on the land to the owner of that land, or it might be disputes over the boundary and, and so on. Part of my role during my time was to meet with people who had participated in a mediation process, um, families who were living on contested land, and to try to understand what were the benefits of their participation in, in a land dispute mediation process. And so we, we drive from the Mercy Corps office through the mountains, and of course you're getting nauseous on the way because it is just, there, there are no straight roads in Guatemala, I'm telling you, it's just curve after curve after curve. And eventually, after an hour or two, we uh, made it to a, a small village and I met with a, a family that was a party to a, a mediation process over a land dispute. And what I expected to hear, knowing that the, the process was complete, was that this was great. Uh, this was something to be celebrated um, because their dispute with uh, a neighboring community had been resolved. And what I heard instead surprised me. What I heard was that there was a sense of dissatisfaction because um, there were other communities, other families that lived across other parts of the border of their mm -hmm. territory, of their land. And there were ongoing disputes. And the thing about disputes in Guatemala over land is that they often turn violent. This isn't just a, oh, hey man, can you like, you know, turn down the music? Um, it's like, or like, can you trim those hedges? I mean, this is a matter of yeah. life and death in Guatemala because people live off the land. Uh, people right. grow crops to feed their families. And so this is really serious stuff. And they said, um, you know, we have five other disputes with, with other parties. And so my obvious follow-up question was, well, 
you know, what type of effort have you made to resolve those disputes? And, and here the answer really surprised me because the answer was, well, oh, we can't do that. We're, we're waiting for a technician to come. The technician uh, will do the land measurements. You know, they, they have the GPS and they can figure out, you know, where the boundary actually is. And, and hopefully they'll come sometime soon, but we don't really know when they're, when they're coming. Um, and, and what struck me, of course, was, well, it might be great if a technician were to come. It sounds like that's not imminent. Um, and in the meantime, wouldn't there be something you might be able to do, like talk with these other communities and try to understand how you intend to use the property, how they might want to use the property? Are there some creative solutions that could be explored? Um, are there some criteria that might help you figure out um, where exactly the border ought to be. And so my, my takeaway from that experience was any sort of intervention when you're trying to manage conflict or prevent violence um, or advance peace in some way should include a component of building the skill among participants so that they themselves can take action, take peaceful action, engage in better conversation across difference, explore different perspectives, build relationships, even when there's disagreement, as opposed to just something that is done to people in a program. And when you don't have those outside people intervening, nothing gets accomplished. And there's just a, a hope that maybe some other solution will show up on your doorstep. And it's interesting because I, from a, a, a negotiation standpoint, one of the things I hear you saying is they felt they couldn't do anything until they had this outside standard of legitimacy and there's a whole lot that you could be doing in advance of that. That's exactly right. You know, the interesting thing about the, the land in Guatemala, I mean, I'm thinking about like land use in the United States, right? We, we own land and we, you know, if we're, if we're fortunate enough, I'm not a, a property owner and I don't own land myself, but, um, but maybe one day I'll have a house um, and, and maybe, yeah, we'll have a backyard, kids can play and all that stuff. Um, but in Guatemala, with the indigenous communities that we were working with, they they generally wanted, and I, I've read, you know, I'd read like dozens of different sort of conflict briefs on, you know, what's what's the issue, how much land is at stake, um, what, you know, why is this problematic? That and generally the families want to, they want to grow corn or coffee or cardamom or some other crop um, again to feed their families or potentially to, to sell in the community, um, or they might want to like build a, a soccer field. The community might want a place for the kids to play, or they might want to build a church or maybe a school. And you can imagine, right, just exploring these different needs that there are all sorts of ways, Gwen and Max, that you might have two different communities that could explore some creative solutions depending on what each community wants to grow, what the timing for the harvest might be, um, what the non-agricultural interests might be. Isn't it worth at least exploring some interim solutions uh, rather than waiting for months or years for this standard of legitimacy, as you say, Gwen, to appear? Something I'm also thinking about, Joe, that I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about is you mentioned mediation and you know we're talking about negotiation. So just for starters, I'm curious, A, can you tell us how they relate to one another? You know, how, how does mediation fit into negotiation or vice versa? And what about um, asking for 
someone else's help based on the pillars of mediation makes the situation difficult to approach. Hmm. I think a good simple definition of mediation is assisted negotiation and sort of negotiation assisted by a third party who's impartial and who does not have control over the substance of what's agreed, but rather has control mm -hmm. over the process. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's the mediator's job to facilitate a good process of open communication, of relationship building, of communication about interest and different options or solutions and exploration of different criteria. And then mm -hmm. helping each party think through, okay, are they gonna be better off with an agreement of some sort? Uh, or are they better off with no agreement and some other solution they can pursue on their own? And mediation is a great process. Um, so long as the mediator is not imposing solutions and not biased towards one party or the other. But I think the struggle or the challenge to answer the second part of your question is when the parties become reliant on the mediator to solve problems for them. And they don't, I think the best mediators maybe through their process can at least model the type of communication, the type of negotiation that we think builds good relationships and leads to better substantive outcomes. And if, if you're not doing any of that uh, and the negotiation parties are reliant on the third party, then that's problematic because conflict is inevitable, right? We, we all come across different people with different goals and different needs. And so we're ill-equipped to, to handle those on our own if we haven't built those skills in some, in some fashion. And just to follow up there, so thank you, first of all, for, for the explanation. Um, what I'm thinking about now is how hard it is as a mediator to see a solution that you think satisfies the party's interests and not to say it. Mm. Um, this is an interesting time thinking about, you know, the Middle East and agreements where parties were absent or a third party imposed a solution onto an area. And, you know, maybe, maybe how that's, that's the chickens are coming home to roost now. I'm just curious, can you, can you talk to us about that counterintuitive idea that if you're there to help and bring solution and you see a solution, why wouldn't you offer it? Hmm. Yeah, well, it's a great question, Max. Um, I think the reason to not offer a solution, at least in the sense of saying, well, here's the, the obvious solution um, that will solve everyone's problems is that um, number one, it's often the parties themselves who are best positioned to um, devise, no, not necessarily, but, but devise solutions that can meet their needs. Second, um, I think the parties are more likely to live up to what's agreed if they themselves have generated the idea as opposed to mm. feeling like it is imposed from the outside. Yeah. Um, and, and again, if we're, trying to, if we're trying to build the skills in participants, to be able to do this on their own, then what I think we want them to do is to learn the skills of brainstorming multiple options, and not just multiple options, but multiple options that meet the needs of, uh, of their own as well as of the other party. And so to the extent that parties become dependent on the mediator to propose solutions, then they're less likely to develop that skill and to practice on their own 
doing that. So I think that's when it becomes problematic. So Joe, I'm, I'm curious about how you're using your experience uh, in, in Guatemala, in Kenya, uh, even in the corporate world in urban rural action. What are, what is, what are you bringing to that? Yeah, so after the 2016 election, I decided that I wanted to make the shift. Again, because if you think about the conflict dynamics that we see in violent contexts around the world, um, misinformation, uh, a broken political system, uh, widespread polarization, distrust of institutions, um, those exist in the United States. And so there are real risks of organized violence either between communities or between sort of community members and the state as we saw on January 6th with the insurrection. So there have been a number of organizations that have sprung up since November, 2016 that do different things to build relationships and, and promote better dialogue. Um, particularly between conservatives and, and liberals, which is a little bit different from what we do, but I want to share uh, an anecdote. Um, one of the initial experiences that I participated in was what's called a red-blue workshop. And this is a workshop led by an organization called Braver Angels, formerly known as Better Angels. And it's an organization whose mission I very much support. The mission is to, quote unquote, depolarize America. And in my mind, depolarizing America is not a panacea for the range of problems that plague our country, but it is, it is one challenge, this toxic polarization where conservatives don't want their kids to marry liberals and liberals don't want their kids to marry conservatives according to, to, to widespread uh, data. And, and so this was a workshop where six self-identified Reds, people who lean conservative, lean to the right, tend to vote Republican elections, were paired with six Blues, self-identified liberals, progressives, people who are left of center, who tend to vote Democratic in elections. And the workshop was designed to depolarize and to uh, better understand different perspectives. And there were a number of exercises that were done. Uh, and it was led by two moderators. And part of the workshop was for people to really open up and share their experiences and for others to, to listen to them. And I, I recall that the, the moderators were essentially leading a workshop from the workshop from a script. It was sort of like you're holding a script and you would say something like, okay, well, the number one important, most important thing for us to remember is that we need to listen. And, and number two, we shouldn't interrupt. Uh, and number three, we should um, try to you know, have some curiosity or, or give other people the benefit of the doubt. And it's sort of like a, a list of things that we should try to remember. Um, and when people were talking, you had a, a fixed amount of time. And then as soon as you were done, you had to move to the next person. Now. What I distinctly recall from this workshop is that there was uh, a man named Rodney who lives in a, a small town in, in southern, south central Pennsylvania um, in, in Franklin County. And he was talking about this really emotional experience of his father and the difficulty that his father had in getting healthcare. Uh, and this was a, a, a self-identified red. And he was opening up about 
um, his feelings about in insurance and access to healthcare and how his ailing dad um, was, was very sick and not able to get the healthcare that he needed. And, and it connected with what a blue in the group had, had shared moments ago. And so there was this rich and, and ripe opportunity for connection, for connecting across an ideological divide through empathy and shared humanity. And as soon as this person, Rodney, who was on the verge of, of tearing up, uh, finished his remarks, in fact, he wasn't even quite done, the moderator said, okay, next. And there was this really squandered opportunity. And I, I, I couldn't believe that there, that there wasn't sort of a, a follow-up or an opportunity to just acknowledge the vulnerability that Rodney had experienced or, or demonstrated. Uh, and, and for me, the takeaway was, well, if we really want to use facilitation as a skill in our country to promote better conversation, and not just better conversation, but better connection across our divides, we need skilled facilitators who can read a room, who can sense the dynamics, and who can draw out some of the, the opportunities for uh, empathy and, and, and shared humanity across a, a divided group. And so I, I mentioned that, Gwen, because um, that and the, and the Guatemala experience made me think, you know, we can do this better in our country. Um, and I think a lot of listeners are familiar with the exercise Hot Topics. Perhaps a, you may want a, to explain it a little bit for those of us. I mean, many of us are, but explain. <laughs> so hot topics is an exercise that we often do. I know that this is sort of like inside baseball, but you know, in a, in a workshop, we might run on influence, right? Difficult conversations. We we introduce these skills of inquiry, acknowledgement, and advocacy. And we say, let's seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Most of us have two ears and one mouth. Let's use them proportionally. Let's try to listen and demonstrate understanding before we share our perspective. So we, we teach this concept, right? Gwen, you've taught it, Max, you've taught it. And, and then we say, okay, let's apply it. And we say, let's do this exercise called hot topics. We wanna get the most controversial issues up on the whiteboard. Let's talk about abortion. Let's talk about gun rights. Let's talk about death penalty, uh, right? Very sort of easy topics to discuss because there's no disagreement on those. And um, we ask people to form groups of maybe three where there's someone who is the, what I call the active listener. The person who is tasked with asking questions from a stance of curiosity and demonstrating understanding with someone who plays the role of talker. And it is a role because if the active listener in real life is opposed to the death penalty, then the talker assumes the position of being pro-death penalty. And the talker begins the conversation by saying, I think the death penalty is a great thing and here's why. And the active listener is really charged with asking some questions to better understand why the talker favors the death penalty and to demonstrate that they, the active listener, understand that perspective, even if they might not agree with it. And I thought, well, well, this is, this is great, but it's a bit artificial because we have one person sort of assuming the role. And by the way, there's a coach who's sort of observing what's going on and providing feedback to the active listener. But what if we could really apply these skills, inquiry, acknowledgement, advocacy, uh, in the context of 
Americans, community members engaging across divides, not where you're playing the role, but you are playing yourself. You are sharing your own perspective and also withholding your perspective so that you can better understand the viewpoints of someone with whom you disagree vehemently on an issue you really care about. And so these three experiences, facilitating hot topics over many years, um, participating in the Braver Angels workshop where there was this rich opportunity for shared humanity that was squandered. And then meeting with indigenous families in Guatemala who were not positioned to try to resolve land disputes on their own and had to wait for a third party savior to arrive. All of them led me to found an organization called Urban Rural Action, which is a nonprofit that brings Americans together across geographic, political, racial, and other divides to build relationships, strengthen collaboration skills, explore different perspectives on issues, and address challenges that impact all communities. So I'm curious about the urban rural. What is, what is that dichotomy? Yeah, we started with the urban rural frame because differences across the urban rural divide are real. And in some ways, in some ways, the urban rural divide is a proxy for other divisions in our country. Um, there are different levels of racial, religious, and ethnic diversity across urban and rural. There are different levels of foreign-born residents, different percentages across urban and rural. And there are, of course, different political leanings. Uh, there's data from the Pew Research Center that people who live in large metropolitan areas believe that people who live in rural areas don't understand their challenges and don't share their values. And similarly, there are folks in rural areas, majorities, that say, oh, people who live in cities don't understand our challenges, don't share our values. And so we think that there's an, an opportunity that lies primarily because outside of any large metropolitan area, if you drive maybe 50 or 100 miles in a certain direction, you can enter into a very different type of community, much more sparsely populated, perhaps with different demographics, perhaps with different property values, um, perhaps with different political leanings. And so that's an opportunity pre-pandemic and hopefully soon post-pandemic for positive interactions in person where you can better understand different perspectives, better understand the challenges of communities that are different from your own and understand how you might work across those differences to take action together on, on issues like the education or the environment or the economy or criminal justice and so on. Joe, I think this designation is really important and to put that in relief with conservative or liberal, unfeeling or too feeling. Um, it reminds me of a Roger Fisher story and you'll, you'll have to check me on this, that um, in terms of categories, he said something like, you could categorize snakes as snakes that are less than three feet and more than three feet, but it's probably more helpful to categorize them as poisonous or non-poisonous. And what you're saying there in terms of like the significance of a gun, for instance, in a rural setting versus an urban setting means something different. And I think you could argue from an anthropological point of view or sociological point of view that the space has like relates to the work, relates to the divisions of labor, relates to the attitudes, relates to relationships. And, and so all of that. So I think that's a brilliant, I think that's a brilliant divide. I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious if that's the case, if that's shown up for you, that that distinction has, has held in your observations, or is it the case that people are like, oh, I know what he's saying, Republican, Democrat. 
Hmm. The more work I've done in this space, the more I realize the the difficult the the risks of overgeneralizing about what urban and what rural mean. Um, I don't think those words convey the diversity within or, or like across urban areas on the sure. one hand and across rural areas on the other, right? These are terms that are, are used to mean lots of different things. They're often used as shorthand. Um, and, and sometimes, and maybe this is what you're getting at, Max, we use sort of rural to mean white, conservative and maybe urban to mean sort of more likely person of color and liberal. When in reality, 22% of people in rural communities are people of color. Um, and there are plenty of liberals in rural counties. And of course there are plenty of conservatives in urban areas. And we think that there is merit in working across a divide because as you say, Again, let me know if I'm not understanding correctly, but as you say, there are real differences in terms of culture, in terms of work environments, in terms of what it means to carry a gun, um, in terms of just community issues and preferences. And I also think that we shouldn't overgeneralize about urban versus rural. And we also shouldn't suggest that there are, these are two completely different Americas. Because if you take any issue, and there was a great article I read a, a week ago about broadband. One of the issues that you hear a lot about when it comes to rural economic development is broadband. Too many people in this country who live in rural areas don't have access to the internet. This is hugely problematic. And so there's all sorts of investments that are being made to essentially create the infrastructure that will an, allow people to get an internet connection. On the other hand, there are millions of people in this country, largely people of color, who live in metropolitan areas who don't have access to the internet, not because there isn't an internet connection to be had, but because they can't afford it. And so they're maybe sitting in the parking lot um, next to the library or next to the fast food restaurant trying to do their homework. And so when we think about broadband, we should think about how this is an issue that affects urban and rural in different ways and how the solution needs to look different depending on the community type. And you can say the same thing about criminal justice. You can say the same thing about education, about economic difficulty, right? All of these issues impact all communities in our country. Again, the challenges might look different. The solutions might look different, um, but we shouldn't sort of overgeneralize urban versus rural. And the, the difference does not need to be a divide. So I'm, I'm also thinking a lot of these days about what does it mean when we call something a divide? I, I think it is a divide because of how people in one community view the other and how they believe they're perceived. But it's a difference that can be managed and it doesn't have to translate into a divide that's adversarial or a divide where we dehumanize people who live in the other community type. And I think you're, you're onto something of the, you said it's used as shorthand. Um, people see it in a very stereotypical way, and there's a whole host of assumptions that are made about people who live in a, in a different area. It's very interesting how you've got a couple of issues that actually they have in common but are impacted differently. And, and part of the action that has resulted from, from these insights is, 
is the idea of working across multiple divides, not just geographic. And so our, our name, Urban Rural Action, belies the fact that we are, not belies, but it, it doesn't do justice to um, the range of different identities that people have and that we're trying to work across. So we are trying to transcend political differences and racial differences and generational differences. And in the pandemic, we were no longer able to just bring together 13 people from Philadelphia and 13 people from Adams County, two hours west. And so instead, we now have a programming model that is more statewide and where we are focused on a single issue like the economy. So one of our new programs is Uniting for Action on the Maryland Economy. And of course we have people from Baltimore and we have people from Washington County and Garrett County, but we also have conservatives and liberals and moderates. And we have a target of 45% people of color, uh, which, which slightly exceeds the percentage of people of color across the state to reflect the fact that these types of programs and initiatives tend to underrepresent uh, minority groups. And we are bringing them together to work on um, a range of economic issues, as you say, Gwen, um, whether that's mental health, whether that is educational inequities, whether it's the challenge of people without four-year college degrees struggling to get high-quality jobs, whether it's workforce development or entrepreneurship. Those issues impact people across the state. And by engaging with people who are experiencing those challenges in a different way, we might learn something about what the policy solution might look like, or just we might come up with new ideas the same way we do when we brainstorm with people uh, from, from different backgrounds who have had different experiences than us. And Joe, as someone who's been fortunate enough, I know that you were looking for skilled facilitators in your action, but you've actually let me come as well. So I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, what were we it's, thinking? It's, it's amazing. It's amazing to see not just the ways in which you've translated the tools, um, which I think we say like inquiry, advocacy, and acknowledgement, it's a mouthful, not just see the way that you've translated the tools so that they're accessible and, and put them into a process that's easy to follow, but not too rigid that you don't have opportunities for, for a facilitator to seize moments. But it's just amazing that, and it might be trite to say in terms of thinking about dialogue amongst all of our problems, but when you put people together, you have those opportunities and all it requires, it seems, is the facilitator to capitalize on them. Right? Like you're going to have those opportunities and it feels like half the battle is just getting those people together. Um, my question, my final question before I, I, I leave the last question for Gwen is as a person who has also studied international relations and development and has an interest in the world and believes that other countries and other groups problems can inform our ability to solve our own, should I as a, as a citizen of the United States instead of going abroad or thinking about like, you know, a rural village somewhere, be thinking, okay, instead of talking about Uyghur persecution in China, why don't I look at our own prison system? Why don't I work in this community? And it, it seems like you've done that to a degree, but based on your also global experience, I'm, I'm curious what advice you have for me. Yeah, I love that question, Max. And there are so many challenges affecting communities that we can all work on that I think any type of service, broadly speaking, that is addressing a mass incarceration issue, by the way, 25% of the world's incarcerated population is in the United States, um, or you're addressing climate change, or you're addressing just interpersonal conflict. I'm not gonna say, oh, you should work in the United States instead of overseas, because I think that um, 
sometimes a lot of the developing countries that are experiencing violent conflict don't have the resources that we have in the United States. And I think that there's a great opportunity for professional development, for human development, um, and for exchange of ideas in overseas work. And I would say, let's not neglect the problems in our own country. We are a country that is experiencing a serious threat to our democracy. We are a country that has 2.2 million people um, in county jail or state prison or federal prison. Uh, we are a country that is experiencing significant hate crimes um, against Asian Americans and against other minority groups. Um, so I, right, we, there's a whole litany of challenges and I would say, yes, don't, don't ignore those. When you think about what you might want to do, um, there is lots to do in the United States. And by the way, um, there are also real risks to organized violence because of mm -hmm. the lack of trust in our institutions, because of misinformation, and because of hostility across our political divides. And I do just want to say one thing, Max, because it was you alluded to it in the first part of your comment and question, is that let's all of us try to make these approaches that maybe originated in the academic arena a bit more accessible. And so these terms of inquiry, acknowledgement, advocacy, which to me feel a bit stuffy, we, we call them the ABCs. Um, a is ask questions to better understand their view. B is break down your view so they can understand your reasoning. And C is check your understanding of their perspective. And right, the ABCs, we, we want people from all different educational backgrounds, all different types of experiences in life to be able to use these skills. No one, none of us was born an effective communicator across difference. These are skills that we learn. And so let's make it easier for people to learn and apply these skills um, rather than using academic jargon that might not be as accessible for folks. Wow, and all these different ways, Joe, that you have taken these skills, these ways of, of, of crossing divides, of, of really training people, uh, both in the United States and, and throughout the world, are, it's really inspiring. And I think your call to action to people is also very inspiring and that there are lots of ways that people can, can get involved. Um, I think that this is a perfect place to, to leave it. I wanna thank you so much for being on our show and uh, hope to check back in with you and find out what's going on with Urban Rural Action. Uh, Max or Joe, any final words? Yeah, Joe, how can we, how can people get involved then and learn more? Sure. Um, well, first, thanks so much, Gwen and Max, for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. If you are interested in working across divides in our country to strengthen our communities, please do visit uraction.org. That's the letter U, the letter R, action.org. You can sign up for our newsletter. Folks can also email me, Joe at youareaction.org. I'd be happy to connect. Bravo, Joe, and, and let us know when you run for office. We'll <laughs> do, Max. Likewise. Thanks, Joe. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Gwen. Thanks, Max. In listening to our guest, Gwen, um, first of all, the work that Joe Bowman is doing is, is incredible. It's amazing. It's necessary. And one of the biggest things that I'm taking away from it is the injunction to make the tools accessible that they're grounded in, in theory, 
and rigorous research and pouring through transcripts and all of that. But at the end of the day, it's important that people can access them, can use them, can understand them and make them their own. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very good example of bringing the tools into another realm and that they can be used to bridge any divide. Uh, I also was very taken with Joe's description of the difference between actual mediation and teaching negotiation. I think as negotiation trainers, when we tell people what we do, people often assume and say, oh, so you're a mediator. And indeed, you know, there's a difference between those two and make really making that distinction uh, that a mediator is not somebody who comes in and just solves the problem. It's, it's much more of a process oriented uh, vocation. And Gwen, it's such an important distinction between negotiation and mediation. And just to name it, when we're talking about negotiation, usually we're talking about how people pursue their interests, how they get what they want, how to get things done with other people. And mediation is different when you're the mediator because you are not an expressly forbidden in principle from expressing your own interests. You are there to guide the process and facilitate other parties negotiating, helping them surface their interests, helping them go through options and commitment, but yourself always maintaining equidistance from the parties, neutrality, and also knowing that, as Joe mentioned, the durability of a commitment is very much related to the self-determination of the parties. They have to be the ones that come to it. And that's a really important part um, that separates mediation from negotiation. Well said, Max. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Joe Bubman, and we hope that you can join us next week when our guest will be our colleague, Chanda Andrews. Chanda's gonna talk about a story where she used the tools that we teach in the training room to deal with a difficult situation. Guess what, friend? You've just listened to Trainer Talk, a podcast where negotiation trainers talk shop. You can listen to this podcast on every podcast platform. If you have comments or questions, you can reach out to Gwen at G-W-E-N-K-A at AOL.com or to me at Maxwell at MaxNegotiating.com. If you want to support this podcast, you can spread the word by sharing it on LinkedIn and most importantly, by tuning in. Thank you so much for joining us and happy negotiating.